Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and it's Wednesday, May 12th, 2021. And today we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days and taking a look at how that impacts what the jobs we do in international education. Uh, so as those of you who are watching live on Facebook, we're really glad to be coming to you each week at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on every Wednesday uh, to share our thoughts on these three questions, three themes that we're seeing in the news that we cover each week. Uh, we do take our news stories that we bring into the course of the roundup here, take those from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays each week. That's all the SMIE News Fit to Share. That stands for Social Media and International Education News and that we put that out on Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, and then we take our th a set of those stories each week and develop our questions uh, that uh, make sense for how, taking next steps as uh, international educators in terms of adjusting our, our practices and our policies and just our awareness of what's going on in the world around us. So let's dive right into it. Uh, obviously, we're grateful for those watching live, but for those who watch on repeat on either our YouTube channel or our Facebook page and those that are podcasting us, thanks for now putting us over 1,400 downloads. We're really excited about that and uh, that those that are making us a regular part of their listening habits. So thanks so much for that. But let's get right to the questions. Our first one is, a, is one that we see uh, a lot of concern about uh, and because it is the number one market for U.S. institutions, and that's China. Uh, we've, we've talked about China many times on the Roundup in terms of how their, uh, their views on the visa process. Their, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today as well, but also about recruiting in China, how it's a very different beast uh, than anywhere else. And uh, it's one that I think for anyone who's been in international education more than a minute knows that you, if you're going to recruit in China, there, there has to be a very different approach than you're using anywhere else in the world. Now, the little bit of the history of, of Chinese students uh, in the United States, uh, they are not only the number one des uh, source country for international students here in the U.S., but also for the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, and several other Western nations, uh, and also non-English speaking nations. Uh, they are heavily uh, populating the world uh, with inter as international students. So they're all, uh, we've talked also about how they're also a, a, an increasingly popular destination for incoming international students to study there in China, uh, largely due to their BRI initiatives, Belt and Road initiatives, over the last uh, 15, 16 years. So what we're going to talk about today is the current Chinese student market and how best to approach uh, them and what are some of the issues and concerns you need to be aware of as you recruit there. Uh, I take uh, the majority of my content for this piece of the answering this question uh, from my colleagues at Sonorbus. Uh, Sonorbus is an Australian-based institution or organization that exclusively focuses on the China market and helping uh, businesses, but primarily educational institutions, get a foothold in that country. And they've done this through, they, they approach uh, China not from an education perspective, but from a technology perspective. And that's important, I think, in terms of understanding the market uh, because it is so different, but also because not everybody can have boots on the ground and actually have staff offices in China. 
there has been a history of, of that in, in China since probably the mid-2000s, where U.S. institutions that started in the mid-2000s to get uh, an upsurge in undergraduate applications that they've written quite well for maybe a decade or so, but have seen a drop-off recently in interest from China, particularly over the last four or five years. Uh, that the part of that is our political uh, leadership in the past four years uh, has not been the most favorable toward China. Uh, does not uh, do anything to um, other than to uh, play to the lowest common denominator in terms of views on China. Uh, we all know uh, what pe previous President Trump uh, called the ch uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, it's really uh, important for us to, to recognize that that had an impact in, on interest, but also students in China and parents are looking at safety issues um, on how their sons or daughters are going to be perceived uh, in the U.S. as Asian and as Chinese uh, and as potentially a threat by some. And we've, we all know uh, what, uh, what that involves here in the U.S. and has involved uh, regarding Asian hatred. Uh, hatred towards Asians in the U.S. and uh, the campaign that's obviously started to combat that here is great, but they're, they're, that doesn't assuage all the concerns of Chinese parents and their sons or daughters. So those campuses that in the early 2000s started to receive this uh, huge upswing of undergraduate Chinese, which is, was a new phenomenon in the U.S. Prior to 2000, uh, Chinese graduate students far outweighed uh, Chinese undergraduates in the U.S. It was probably 10 to 1 at, at that point in the, two, early, in the 1990s. Uh, but now uh, Chinese undergraduates are more common in the U.S. than Chinese, under, Chinese undergraduates are more common in the U.S. than Chinese graduate students. So the tide has certainly shifted. And a lot of that's due to the rising middle class, the, uh, the thought for Chinese parents to give their sons or daughters legs up in their future career pursuits by having a U.S. education, and now that's expanded to having an overseas education, not necessarily in the U.S., but other countries as well, which we've talked about. But I think what's important to understand, unless you do have significant present, physical presence in China, whether that's through strong partnerships where you have staff-based, whether it's having your own office, uh, whether it's a network of agents that do the recruitment for you there, uh, unless you have that physical presence, have offices, study abroad offices that where you have staff that can physically manage uh, visits and other relationships you have in China uh, physically, unless you have that, and very few campuses do, uh, certainly a lot of the usually bigger schools, the bigger state institutions that's created offices in China. Obviously, NYU is, the, is a prominent private institution uh, that is, has their own campus in Shanghai, uh, one of the few campuses that's actually had international students able to return to it during the pandemic in China. Uh, so there's, uh, unless, unless you have that physical presence in that country, uh, you are uh, almost shut out if you're just doing things as you do for any other country in the world by having a, having a website present that might have some uh, Mandarin content or having a social media presence uh, that, you, is, uh, that is worldwide. Uh, if that's all you're doing to recruit in China, you're invisible there. Frankly, you're invisible. Um, the Chinese market is a different beast than any other country. And if you don't go into it with that mindset from the beginning, you're missing the boat and, and missing opportunities to really make an effort to in 
to really engage uh, in ways that make sense for that audience. And living where your audience lives is an important principle I've always lived by in international education. And when it comes to China, if you don't have a digital footprint in China that is China-based, you are missing opportunities to connect. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, and the content that I'm sharing from us, an article from Sonorbus, uh, is is really focused on this, and it, it goes through the full life cycle of international Chinese students' interest uh, and what you need to be focusing on. It covers what the key factors are for Chinese students, and that covers obviously university rankings. Unfortunately, that's still a reality for the Chinese market. Tuition fees, uh, where it's not just the super rich that are coming to the U.S. anymore; it's a, a much broader cross section of Chinese society that are considering the U.S. as an option, one option. Uh, it's the course content, what that leads to in terms of job opportunities. It's the student experience, the campus culture, all of that matters. And how students are treated safety-wise on campus. Is that, are there incidents that they, parents should be aware of uh, that, against Chinese students in your, in that, on your campus? And costs, living costs as well. That's, uh, again, it's not just the super rich that are, are interested. So really important that you see what the Chinese market is really keen on finding out about you uh, and how they find out about you is also important uh, because when they start their process, uh, almost a third of, of Chinese students begin planning more than two years out from when they're going to start. They do their own initial research before they go, typically go to an agent, which is still the primary way of uh, Chinese students finding their way to U.S. and or other countries for university study. So they're, they're consulting online resources. They're looking at social media in China, which is, as we know, very different than anywhere else in the world. It's an, it's an entire ecosystem of its own within China, both on the website because it's heavily monitored and controlled by the government and, by, and coincidentally by Chinese search engines that even though they're privately owned are, have very significant restrictions that the government puts on in terms of outside content. That social media is all different. It's not the Facebook, Twitters, YouTubes of the world. Uh, it is um, the Yukus. It is uh, the Weibos. It is, and the, the kind of the big elephant in the room is the WeChat. Uh, that you have to have presence on those if you're going to be noticed uh, in in a, any serious way. Uh, that um, what uh, the, the article that Sonorbus puts out is a, a really useful one because it does break down what students, uh, the concerns for prospective students and their parents uh, uh, in, ter in terms of before they come to campus, what they're concerned about once they arrive, uh, what, they, uh, what, their, what the future is going to be for them after graduation in terms of awards, uh, uh, what they're looking for about news about fellow graduates, uh, alumni events, all of that. So there's, I really like this approach that Sonorbus has taken here to kind of outlining for institutions in the clearest way possible what you need to be paying attention to when you're looking at Chinese students and the cho their, in, in their initial search, uh, which needs to be uh, obviously uh, is done in China and on Chinese search engines and on Chinese social media in terms of how they're getting their content. So the foundation for a successful strategy, again, even if you do have boots on the ground, you want to have a strong digital presence if you want to be serious about reaching the Chinese audience. So the key is having locally hosted content here uh, that is optimized for Chinese uh, search engines, that does allow you the access to 
to that mar to that market in ways that if you're just using uh, your homegrown in the United States on your campus site and don't have anything, even if you have something on Mandarin in your site, doesn't mean it's going to be seen uh, in China. Uh, in fact, 94% of websites from the West are not visible in China. 94% have no or poor localization in China in terms of keyword searches and optimization for Chinese search engines again. 89% uh, aren't were not optimized for, for Chinese search engines. Uh, why is that important to establish a presence on Chinese search engines? Because uh, that's the first place that students and parents will potentially go unless they already know someone or are only looking at rankings. That it helps uh, agents or other partners that are doing recruitment for you be able to promote you uh, on those low, on Chinese search engines if you're accessible. Because that, that matters. Uh, if, uh, if you're not visible to them on their search engines, uh, in their social media, you, are, uh, you have a much lower chance of uh, getting in front of those right students and convincing them that you're the right place for them. So it's, it's really important to, 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 to take a digital first approach anywhere you go nowadays. Obviously the last year has taught us that digital first is the way to go. Uh, and in China, it's, a, it's digital first, but understanding the nuances of the Chinese market. So great content here from Sonorbis. And uh, we talked about the importance of social media, local social media in, chi in China. Uh, WeChat is the big, uh, biggest platform there with 1.15 billion users. Uh, it's almost, and that's worldwide, but uh, probably 90% of those are in China. Um, Two-thirds of them are logging in over 10 times a day, so it is a platform. It's like Facebook on steroids. If you look at the entire Facebook ecosystem, it's, it's, it's all of that and more. Uh, WhatsApp, Instagram, Messenger, Facebook itself, uh, Reels, all of these things that are Facebook properties. It's, it's, WeChat is all of that and more. Uh, it's where people are paying bills. It's, paper, it's where every, every form of media is consumed there. Uh, so it is, it is the site that you must have a presence on. And importantly, there are options like on Twitter and Facebook that you can become a verified account or an official account, a WeChat official account. And part of what uh, Sonorbis uh, provides is not only a locally hosted website content that the institutions can control, but they can also help you get the WeChat official account that is your university. So you, 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 can't just, you, you can go on and create a university account that looks like your name, your university name, but it's not going to be verified unless it's locally hosted and you have that uh, uh, Chinese partner uh, to, to manage, to, to at least facilitate your ownership of it and uh, allow you the platform to continue uh, to post regularly on it. So really important uh, tips from Sonorbis on how to really take a digital first approach in China and what you need to be answering for prospective students and families uh, to, to really get in front of them on, on, the on the research stage with search engines, but also to have that full digital presence and website and, and social presence that really uh, gives you the broadest access and best chance for success if you're only doing digital in China. So great article and certainly one I recommend uh, everybody have a chance to read and bookmark and uh, share with your colleagues uh, in your Marcom teams uh, on campus and uh, certainly open their eyes hopefully if they're not already aware of just what they're up against in terms of competing for student eyes in China. Now uh, let's shift gears now and talk to the next topic uh, which is 
to kind of the end of the process. So we're talking about what you need to be doing on the front end to be to connect with Chinese audiences. Let's talk about the back end, uh, not just for China, but also for India. Well, how are new visa opportunities uh, being received in top markets? Last week we talked about some of the changes that the Biden administration has made with uh, first the national interest exemption that was originally for, uh, I think it was China uh, and or India and um, China, India, Brazil, and Schlangen and UK. Uh, that in Ireland that was made uh, available that students from those countries would be able to come after May for, after August 1st for U.S. studies. So that that certainly, even though there are 80% of the world is now under a COVID travel ban to the United States, uh, international students were initially in these countries, small number of countries, were given the exemption to be able to uh, come to the U.S. Uh, to study. And the other half of that is uh, those the NIE list was expanded to all countries. Uh, for students from those countries to be able to come after August 1st. So that certainly put uh, kind of a green light on a lot of, uh, for a lot of students to say, okay, full speed ahead, we can, we can finally make it to the United States. And we're talking this fall, uh, over the course of the next three or four months, we're talking about three different groups of students that are potentially going for visas, student visas, to come to the United States. We're talking about students that deferred their study for a year and decided, okay, we're going to let this uh, pandemic uh, blow over before we actually physically come to the U.S. You've got a second group that actually did enroll, uh, albeit virtually, uh, this past year and have been doing online classes, and that's been a, uh, probably Oh goodness! Probably 40. There were 40, about 40,000 students or more from that IIE fall snapshot survey that deferred, and there's probably another, gosh, 100,000 students that have been studying remotely for the last year that would be would be coming to the U.S. as well uh, to to physically start their, their on-campus studies. And then there's going to be all the students that have applied in the last year for admission that will also be hoping to come in the fall. So there's going to be a huge demand uh, and at, at U.S. consulates and embassies opening uh, up for visa appointments. And that's the other bit of news. The, the, the embassies in India and in China have uh, begun to reopen our top two markets. So that's important to know that in those two markets, the embassies and consulates will be available for students who want to go. The embassy in Beijing opened uh, May 4th, um, very important day, obviously not just Star Wars Day, uh, but they opened the embassy for student visa appointments and we're, we're saying they're going to have 3,000 visa up by the middle of May. They'll be at 3,000 visas, uh, visa interviews done each day. So that's great news if that continues and that uh, they're able to maintain that through the summer. They had a bit of a misstep uh, this past week uh, in Beijing where they uh, they were they put out a social media post that was meant to be funny uh, that says our Chinese students and and parents like this uh, this dog look this happy dog looking to escape his cage and uh, or escape jump over the fence and, and make it to the United States uh, and that was not well received because uh, which is shocking that a, a an embassy in China would do that uh, and compare Chinese students to dogs. Uh, dogs are not highly valued in Chinese society uh, as a whole and that, that was a big social media backlash so that was a bit of a misstep there but hopefully they get back on their back on their feet in the right direction soon. But uh, in China that's certainly the, there's positive energy around the reopening of consulates uh, so we'll hope that continues and, and crosses over to the other 
other consulates in Shenyang, in Chengdu, Shanghai, and obviously Guangzhou. Uh, we hope that they are able to uh, begin full visa uh, interviews, uh, full slate, 3,000 a day. Great. I hope that continues because uh, there's going to be a big backlog, and that's going gonna to be a real challenge for the embassies and consulates to, to get through that by, by the end of the summer. So let's, give, let's keep our fingers crossed and hope that all works out. In India, uh, con the embassy folks uh, a week before the Chinese said that they're opening up uh, Chinese embassy uh, or the US embassy in China. Uh, in India, they already said they're going to be opening up. Uh, they've obviously had a fourth wave or a major second wave in, uh, in India that is just wrecking the country right now. Healthcare systems on the verge of collapse. Uh, these uh, vaccines are, uh, have been given, begun to be given out over the last month or two, but uh, they're the largest producer of vaccines, homegrown vaccines. Uh, they've also got the Ru a Russian version called Sputnik, <laughs> the Sputnik vaccine that's available in India. But they're, that's not something that is going is, is, to, they're not able to keep pace with it in terms of and get it out to enough of the population yet. Uh, obviously, with uh, there's such shortages in oxygen and other basic healthcare needs that they're struggling with in India right now. So our hearts certainly go out to all our colleagues there and students and parents that are struggling to get through and uh, eventually, um, hopefully, for those students that are already in process, be able to get their visas and come. So we'll obviously be monitoring that very closely. Uh, it's a it's a real trying time because uh, there's so many there's so much uncertainty. Uh, not only for students that are in-country uh, back home looking for that visa opportunity, applying for that, uh, getting ready for that interview in the course of a pandemic when it's, it's so, much, so many more variables to, to think about. Uh, you also think about the institutions that they're going to be coming to that are grappling with the issues of vaccinations and requiring them or not, what uh, standard uh, health procedures and protocols will be in place in the fall, how different will it look. Uh, for those that were have been on campus already this past year that were able to come last fall uh, will some of that still continue masking still continue into the fall uh, so there's a lot of a uh, lot of concerns a uh, lot of uncertainty uh, and a very fluid situation in, in as we're seeing in, in India now and in other countries that are experiencing uh, second or third or fourth spikes in, in COVID waves uh, we're looking at uh, really this uh, ch a challenging time over the next few months for, for all internationally mobile students and the universities and colleges that are hoping to enroll them. But it's certainly a uh, time that there's at least more hope now than we had a year ago that uh, students would be able to make it here in time for the fall. It certainly can't get much worse than it was last fall when you look at the numbers and you saw the SEVIS numbers in particular, which are the real-time numbers that show how many people were in country, that there was a 70% drop in new students actually physically in country. The IIE fall snapshot survey showed 43% drop, but then again, that doesn't count the 30% or so that uh, were studying remotely. So it's uh, for the last year. And th those group, that group of students will be coming in. So 30%. Uh, if you look at it, new student numbers uh, through Open Doors are typically over, over 300,000 new students a year uh, have been coming to the U.S. on average the last uh, five or six years. So 30% of those were studying remotely from the SEVIS, inferring from the SEVIS numbers. That's, that's, uh, that's a very significant drop, obviously. Uh, that would be 
equivalent of 100,000 students potentially or more that have started studies but have done that remotely this past year. Uh, you look at the students that deferred, the IIE snapshots already said 40,000, so they're also in the mix. So uh, huge demand at the, at the consulates and embassies and we really hope that they're able to sustain it. Uh, sustain and, and get through that all uh, by the time classes begin in the fall. Well, let's shift gears finally and talk about Canada. Uh, Canada is our is Canada our northern neighbor, specifically Ontario, uh, in trouble. And this is this is a little it's very strange to be saying this about Canada, but uh, particularly the the premier in Ontario, uh, Doug Ford, has asked Ottawa, asked the federal government. Uh, to slow, uh, to suspend the arrival of international students and a bit to slow the spread of COVID because they've had a, a, what they're calling a fourth wave up there uh, north of the border in Ontario. And it's a, a province that has more international students than any other province in Canada. So this is a significant decision that if Canada's borders, uh, or at least to Ontario, are closed to international students this fall, now that's that's a big hit that those colleges and universities are already taken. We've already seen the case of Laurentian uh, University, uh, one of the major, the biggest dual language uh, institution in Ontario, uh, already having financial difficulties, uh, filing for protection from creditors uh, earlier this year. That's uh, that that that's any decision like this to prevent international students from coming in means another at least semester or half a year or a full year, depending on how, the, how, how it goes, of international students not able to enter Canada, much like Australia's international students not being able to return, uh, their govern, government has not reopened, that students have had to take, if they wanted to enroll, continue to enroll, they'd have to do it online. And that's not a sustainable model for most students. They don't want to do the courses online. That's not why they applied to these countries and these institutions to begin with. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens uh, with this. But uh, even though the premier in Ontario is saying that uh, he doesn't want international students allowed in to slow the spread, uh, the, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is saying Ontario is the only province that is making that request. Uh, and that uh, he's not considering, uh, Trudeau is not considering barring international students from entering Canada at this point, but he is willing to work with Ontario more narrowly. So uh, the Premier in Ontario has called for federal government to institute hotel quarantines at land borders as well. Uh, but uh, Trudeau is saying there's already tight controls at land borders, including tests before and after crossing and a mandatory two-week quarantine. So the, the, exam the other issues of who pays for this quarantine if, it, if and when it gets implemented, or it is implemented, but who, who's paying for that? For universities, are, are, are they going to be in a position to do that, to house them on campus and pay for it? Uh, for, for the students, or is that something the students want to do themselves? In terms of when they arrive, are they going to be able to do that uh, before classes begin to quarantine before they begin, or will they be able to start uh, only that first week of class, whatever it, or whatever it is? So a lot of variables to work out beyond the normal ones that you know, traveling students would have to think about. So a lot to, think, lot to process, obviously, when it comes to uh, arrival plans, not just in the U.S., but obviously Canada as well. But it, it's, it, it raises the point, I think, that uh, we need to be concerned with in the U.S. in terms of how our institutions are responding and preparing 
Uh, and we saw challenges with this last summer when there was all of a sudden in July the uncertainty on uh, whether students who were coming to the U.S. in the fall would be able to enroll in hybrid or online courses. Um, or hybrid courses in particular. Uh, the online was only possible for returning students and has only been possible for returning students. But for new students, uh, if, they, if, they're, if, they're, if their institution was going to be online only, they could not come in. And there was a, even a chance that hybrid and online would, for new students would not be possible and even returning students would not be possible. But that changed. But what didn't happen at a lot of schools is communicating with those incoming students, what the what the changes were going to be, uh, or what how your institution was responding to those. So, if you learned anything from last summer, it's you need to have an, kind of a, be on your toes and be aware of any changes coming down the pike because you're going to need to communicate those in quick, fairly quick order to your prospective student audiences. So, what's happening in, in Ontario is, is is kind of well, obviously very worrying. But how are you going to respond as an institution? for those international students that might be coming in. If you're an institution where your state has all of a sudden has a huge spike and they shut down, even though they could get in the country, are you going to just wait, have them quarantine for a couple of weeks and then maybe they'll be allowed in or once they get vaccinated then they'll be allowed into your state? If that ever happens, what is your what are you, your contingency plans and how if you're an international uh, uh, admissions person or your office uh, how do you have a seat at the table for how your institution is responding to these things? Uh, if not you, your boss, are they educated enough to know uh, on the different uh, impacts decisions like this would have uh, for uh, how, to, how to really approach these uh, new student issues that they're going to be facing? So a lot of uh, uncertainty, obviously, and we're, we'll certainly keep you posted of, of uh, all future changes in the coming months as to how they're impacting institutions around the world. But for now, that's all we have for the roundup. We look forward to chatting with you in the weeks and months to come. Have a great day.